And uh, I hear a lot about that. Um, that was during my time, but I wasn't living in Indiana yet. But uh, those are interesting uh, weather stories. But I know there were quite, quite the, uh, it was quite the storm that came through. And, of course, we sing uh, that song and couldn't help but think of how God protects us and watches over us. And even through the storms, if the storms do cause damage or do take lives, we know that we have an anchor of the soul found in Jesus Christ. So Ezekiel chapter 38, book of Ezekiel chapter 38. This is a passage that is much much studied and debated and analyzed, and I did not realize how much this passage was dissected by various commentators and theologians, and uh, in some cases, I don't think that these people even have a clue about eschatology. I think that they are just maybe uh, fascinated with eschatology, and they don't really have a clue uh, what uh, they are talking about because um, there's so much uh, that is out there nowadays about the end times and apocalyptic kind of Armageddon types of, of events that I think some people are very sensational and they don't really know the scripture and don't interpret scripture by scripture. And this is one of those passages that, again, I did not realize till I was doing uh, some more in-depth study. I knew about this passage. I've known about Gog and Magog and uh, battle of Armageddon and the last battle or the final battle. And I, uh, at the same time, did not realize some of the, uh, the ideas that were out there. And some of them are, are pretty convoluted, uh, but some of them are very, they stick very close uh, to Scripture. So I've entitled tonight's message, Future Final Conflicts. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, we won't be able to read every verse of both chapters, but I want us to look at the battle of Armageddon, and I want us to understand that Ezekiel 38 and 39 best falls in line with the battle of Armageddon. There are some who will equate it with the final battle or the last battle during the millennium, and I read one commentator who puts Ezekiel 38 and 39 around the midpoint of the tribulation, but in, in doing uh, various study I, I believe that the best way to understand Ezekiel 38 and 39 is to put it into the context of the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16, 13, and 17. I know that there are good men who will uh, even disagree to some, to some extent on this passage, but I think as we work our way through this, it will uh, make, make a, little bit of, uh, a little bit more sense, hopefully, to us. Uh, I have always been fascinated uh, with history, uh, with battles, with war. I used to take my green army men, and I used to set up huge battles out in the front yard of our little house in Florida. I mean, I had green army men all over the place, and I had trenches, and I had strategies. I had the, the Germans and the Japanese, and I had all of my green army men and I had rivers, and I had all kinds of just imaginary battles and wars. And I always won, and the USA always came out victorious. And uh, I would have bombs dropping, and I would have planes flying over, and I took our hoe, and I would throw my hoe down, and I would hit it, and it would explode, and my little green army men would go flying, and that was when a bomb went off. I've studied books. I love studying World War II. 
Civil War. I think I wore a, a book out. I think the pages were falling off. Uh, I had studied just about every battle in the Civil War, and I had all the, the strategies. And if you've ever been to Gettysburg, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Gettysburg. We've been there three times. At least I have. I think I've been there with my family at least once, if not twice. But I just am fascinated with uh, the, the battlefield there at Gettysburg. And there's just something about standing on the top of Little Round Top and looking out across and seeing what the Confederate Army was trying to march up. And we could talk about the Devil's Den and the Pickett's Charge and the Wheat Field. It's just, it's incredible. And, and the, the strategies... Uh, the battles, the campaigns that are that are fought, World War II, and then we could talk about the various conflicts through the years. It's fascinating. But war is really a tragedy. War is really a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. And why are there wars and fightings among us, James says? It's because we want to consume Upon our own lusts, we bite and devour to consume with our own lusts. And we have seen war and conflict throughout history. And I know that there are these people out there who say that if we just give the liberals and the atheists and the anti-God people, if we just give them all of the power, we give them all the political authority, then they will make all the wars go away and we'll have peace, prosperity, hold hands and sing kumbaya. But they're a bunch of liars. We see conflict all the way down to the final days of the tribulation and then one more at the end of the millennium. And Christ is the one who puts the end to the wars and the conflicts. Because ultimately... Man, in his wars, in his conflicts, yes, he may be fighting amongst himself. Man might be going against man. But oftentimes, ultimately, at the root, it is because men have rejected God's authority that there is war, there is conflict. And at the Battle of Armageddon and at the final battle, it is specifically a war or a conflict against God and God's people. So we are in Ezekiel 38, and we're going to break this down. I don't want this to be overly academic. I don't want it to be boring. We have great attendance tonight. Thank you for your faithfulness. I don't want this to be an academic or boring kind of class, but it is uh, a fascinating study of this battle, and we weren't able to go through it in detail as we were kind of working our way through the, the main events of eschatology. But we're going to see, first of all, the who of the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon takes place, we're not in Romans, or excuse me, we're not in Revelation 16, we're in Ezekiel 38, but Revelation 16, 13 through 17 describes the Battle of Armageddon. And this is at the end of, the Battle of Armageddon is at the end of the seven year tribulation. As the final bold judgment is poured out, there is the final battle led by the Antichrist and his armies against Israel, against God. And that is ultimately what I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 are are describing. There is the last battle or the final battle at the end of the millennium where Satan deceives 
the unbelievers who were born during the millennial kingdom, there were, were people who were saved, two believers, excuse me, that were born, excuse me, two believers, two saved people, but they never trusted Christ as their Savior. Growing up in the millennial kingdom, even with Christ as king, ruling with a rod of iron, as the perfect king here on earth for a thousand years, as those children are born, many of them don't trust Christ as their Savior. They don't receive Christ. And Satan gathers them one more time and has, has a final battle. Now, I know that's where Gog and Magog are specifically referenced. I'll get to that. And I think that's why there is some confusion as to what Ezekiel 38 and 39 are describing. Because Gog and Magog are used in Revelation 20. But I want you to bear with me as we work our way through this. Again, I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 best describe the Battle of Armageddon. So who is this Magog? Who is Gog? Well, Magog is... Identified in Genesis 10 and verse 2 as the grandson of Noah, who founded a kingdom north of the Black and Caspian Sea. He was a descendant of Japheth, one of Noah's sons. So as we identify Gog and Magog, I think it is best for us to understand that Gog is the leader. Gog is a title for the leader of the army. And in the Battle of Armageddon, the leader of the army opposed to Israel and to God is the Antichrist. So a title for the Antichrist could also be Gog. And then Magog would be the nation or the army that he leads. Now, that then takes us to Revelation 20, where Gog and Magog are specifically referenced. And again, this I think is why there is some confusion regarding this battle and what Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe. But Gog is most likely symbolic of, or a title, even for Satan himself in Revelation 20, who leads the army of unbelievers in one final battle at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. Now, we could get into some of the research. We could get into some of the details of this and understand that in Numbers chapter 24, Agag is referred to in the original language as Gog. In Deuteronomy 3 and verse number 1, there is a king named Og. Can you imagine being named Og? But his name was Og in, in the original language. Again, we understand that Gog is that uh, name in the original language. So we understand from 1 Chronicles 5 and verse number 4 in the Hebrew, the name Gog, and then we take that and compare it to Numbers 24 and verse 7, Deuteronomy 3 and verse number 1, and we understand that Gog is most likely a title, and Magog is the people, the army, the nation that Gog is leading. Pharaoh is a title for the king of Egypt. There were many different pharaohs. Okay, there's also some understanding that Herod, Herod could be a title. And there were different men who had other names, but Herod was a title. So it's not unusual 
for there to be titles used, especially in ancient times. But we, we do this to some degree even nowadays. And there are various rulers. We might use terms like president, prime minister, various titles. And there are people who hold that office. So we're not doing exegetical gymnastics to try to get Gog and Magog to be titles. It is, under, it, is, it is with knowledge of the language and with knowledge of how even the Word of God uses these names that help us to identify Gog and Magog and interpreting Scripture by Scripture that they are likely titles. And then there were specific people, obviously, who served as Gog in in the army of Magog. So we come now to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel 38, and we begin at verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech in Tubal, and prophesy against him. Okay, so we see the land of Magog. Now we understand also that Gog and Magog were also titles or representative of barbarians who lived up in Turkey, modern day Turkey. So they were known, the the, the titles, the, the name Gog and the title Magog would have even referenced groups of people and a leader of some barbaric people, evil people, wild people, people who were not disciplined and who were not under God's authority and were not living in a way that was orderly and submitted to God and to his his, his, his rule and his leadership. Okay, so we have a lot to kind of unpack when it comes to Gog and Magog, but that helps us understand what is being referred to in Revelation 20 or Revelation 16. Now, the King James very accurately translates in verse number two, the chief, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So, The word chief in the original language is rosh. Now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm pronouncing the Hebrew language hopefully better than Dan Clark did this morning. (laughs) Whenever he tried to to pronounce hearts in Hebrew, or whatever that was. Rosh, rosh is chief. Now, what you'll find, if you do search, and I'm not recommending you go out and you search all the deep places of the internet. There's a lot of baloney out there, okay? But you'll find, as I did, maps, commentaries, articles that refer to Rosh as a separate country, a separate place identified on the map, and sometimes it is used to refer to Russia. Rosh, Russia, Russia, okay? I'm not saying that I have all the authority and the full uh, dogmatic privilege to say that Rosh is not Rasha, Russia, but chief is actually the correct translation for, 
the word Rosh. So it's actually not referring to another place. We find, chief, this word Rosh translated chief in other places in Scripture. And I did not write down all of those places, but I believe it's in Numbers 24 and verse 7 where Agag um, is, is mentioned that there's a, a use of the word chief, but it's, it's in several places. And again, I did not write, write all those down. But there are 600 specific places where the, the word rosh is used as an adjective. And again, it's translated chief in 2 Kings 25 in verse number 18. So I got a couple of my notes crisscrossed here. So 600 times the word rosh is an adjective. 2 Kings 25 in verse 18, it is translated chief. So that helps us in understanding that we're talking about Gog, again, as a title of a leader over a group or a land, an army of Magog, understanding in the context of Scripture and the grammatical historical context of Scripture and the way Rosh is used and the way Gog and Magog are used, that we're probably talking about, again, titles And people in ancient times would have understood a Gog and a Magog as even at times referencing those barbaric people up there in the the area of what we know as modern Turkey. Okay? So again, we've spent a lot of time kind of unpacking the who in this particular battle, the Battle of Armageddon. So one more time to kind of summarize it all. Revelation 16, the Battle of Armageddon, is going to be probably best explained in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Though we have Revelation 16 obviously telling us about the Battle of Armageddon. But Gog and Magog are mentioned in Revelation 20 in the final battle probably representative, again, of, as a title, of Satan who leads the army from the four corners of the earth, which again is an area of comparison because there are four armies in the Battle of Armageddon and there are four corners of the earth in Revelation 20 from which Satan deceives at the end of the Millennial Kingdom and brings that army once again in rebellion against God one last time. So that's why I think there are some areas of confusion. And if you really want to dive into uh, some deeper study, I can give you uh, some books and and some things. Uh, I think the Internet can often be a place that is very confusing. And uh, you can get really deep in a lot of speculation. And can I just say sensationalism and get away from what the scriptures really are teaching Um, So I just, I I say that there are some good books out there. Uh, I just warn you about just doing some random internet search because you can find some far-fetched stuff out there. Though there are some good resources on the internet. Don't you ever, don't you always have to qualify when it comes to the internet? You just can't say Google is always right. You can't even say chat GPT is always right. Uh, It's just, it's unbelievable the, the dangers that are out there. So now we're going to get to the who, or excuse me, the where. We talked about the who. Now we're going to talk about the where of the Battle of Armageddon. I have not been to the 
the Holy Land, to, the, the, to, the, to Israel, to the land of Palestine. I've not been there. Uh, I think a few of you have. If you've been to the Holy Land, do you mind raising your hand? I think Dan and Lori have been there. Earl's been there. Derek's been there. Uh, so there's a few of you who, who have been there. Kelly and I have a desire to go there uh, one day, and we'd love to be under Craig Hartman as the tour guide. We had actually a trip planned, and we had money down on a trip with Craig Hartman in 2021, and then something called COVID got in the way, so we weren't able to go. But anyway, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 14, the, the word translated battle is the Greek word polemos, which also is translated as war or campaign. Okay? So that's going to help us in understanding various verses, various scriptures of where the Battle of Armageddon takes place. So, Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo. This is the place that is probably most commonly identified as where the Antichrist and his armies meet their end. And of course, that is a key place in this battle, the Valley of Megiddo. It is referenced in other places of Scripture, Judges 4 and 5, Judges 7, 1 Samuel 31, 2 Kings 9, and 2 Kings 23 and 2 Chronicles 35, and those various events that take place there. But we also see a reference to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The Valley of Jehoshaphat. So Joel 3, 2 and 13 make reference to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Ezekiel 39 and verse 11 makes a reference, I believe, to the the passengers, the Valley of the Passengers there in Ezekiel 39 and verse 11. So we have in Isaiah 34 and in Isaiah 63, the Lord coming from Edom in return from judgment. And then in Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14, we have reference to Jerusalem as the center of the conflict. So we take these passages, we interpret scripture by scripture, we bring them together. We know there's no contradiction. There's no error. It's not like Ezekiel came along and, or Joel came along and he had his version of the Battle of Armageddon. And then Isaiah came along and kind of corrected them, or or Zechariah came along and and fixed what they... No, these are complementary, supplementary, good math terms, complementary and supplementary passages that, again, they complement and they supplement our knowledge. So we put them together to get the fuller or to, to gain a broader and better understanding of what, took, of what takes place, what will take place at the Battle of Armageddon. And, and again, I've not watched the Left Behind series. I've not read all the Left Behind series books. I know some people have read them, and I understand that there are some. I'm not saying it's wrong to watch those or read those. I understand that there is some dramatic interpretation of the Battle of Armageddon in those books in that, in that movie series. I've not seen it. I don't know what... Uh, Timothy LeHay and Kirk Cameron and all of them that were involved in that, what all they defined or how they interpreted all that. But let's, let's stick with 
what the scripture says, and maybe in your mind's eye you're thinking of something you saw on TV or some documentary or something like that, and uh, hopefully we can uh, really come to a good understanding based on, on, on what the scripture says. Not that some of those dramatic interpretations are all wrong, but we have to be careful, as we'll talk, talk about as we get back into our series on uh, the Bible in, in Sunday school, uh, I think Dan's got, we have, we have Michael Garamy this next Sunday, and then I believe Dan's going to do one more uh, lesson, and then we'll get back into our series on Bibliology and Bible Basics uh, for Discipleship, and we'll talk about proper interpretation of Scripture and translation philosophies. And one of the things that we have to be careful, if I can put in a, a little bit of a plug and have a little bit of a rabbit trail, we have to be careful Whenever we are interpreting scripture for a television series, for a movie, anytime we are taking the word of God and we are interpreting it for people, for their consumption, for their knowledge and their understanding of scripture, we have to be very careful that we don't insert man's reasoning and philosophy or interpret in a wrong way and therefore corrupt the word of God in the minds of people. Okay, God has not allowed his word to be corrupted. We have the word of God. We have the word of God trustworthy in front of us. But there are bad translations, bad interpretations So, a little caveat here about Bible interpretation. We must exercise discernment whenever somebody takes stories of the Bible, events of the Bible, what the Bible records 100% accurately, even if the person like Balaam is a liar and a deceiver, even there are accurate quotes of evil people who quote things that are contrary to the word of God, but they are recorded accurately. So it's important for us, whenever we are interpreting scripture, even for television series and movies, that we don't take liberties that corrupt the Bible, that corrupt God's word in the minds of the people. That's a little bit of a caveat. I'm not trying to shoot darts or arrows at at, at people who have been gifted with artistic ability and videography and not saying all movie series and TV series, but we can go back. I honestly, I'm not a big Bible movie fan. I've only watched Ben-Hur one time and that was years ago. Uh, There's the Charlton Heston, Moses and Noah and not saying it's wrong to go to Sight and Sound Theater or to Branson or to Pigeon Forge I like to be very careful if I go to those kinds of events because we always have to be careful to understand that somebody is sitting down and writing a dramatic interpretation of what is stated in Scripture. So we have to be very careful that we stick very closely to what the Scripture says and we don't take liberty beyond what God allows or misinterpret or reinterpret the Bible in such a way that people are deluded or deceived or turned away from what God said in his word, and God meant what he said and said what he meant. So that's a caveat. Sorry, that was a, we were chasing a rabbit for a while there. Sorry about that. So the where, 
the where. Valley of Jehoshaphat, Megiddo, we often refer to it as Armageddon. So here's a map that helps. Um, Megiddo up north, Edom down south. The reference in Isaiah 34 and 63 about the Lord coming from Edom in return from judgment. That's why Edom is referenced. And then we have the Kidron Valley, Valley of Jehoshaphat between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Also, I believe, identified as Megiddo um, up north there. So we have the Valley of Jehoshaphat, we have Megiddo up north, and then we have Edom at the south. Three reference points to understand as, uh, as Ezekiel 38 verse 9 and Ezekiel 38 and verse 16 make reference to the battle covering the land and understanding that there are 1,600 furlongs, this conflict, this battle of Armageddon, in, a, in, in an understanding of the, the, the Greek word um, polemos there that we looked at just a few minutes ago, war or campaign, this battle of Armageddon takes place over 1,600 furlongs. From Megiddo in the north to the valley of Jehoshaphat, Jerusalem being the center point, to all the way down to Edom in the south. Now again, if I can make a reference to the battle of Gettysburg, I'm not saying that the Battle of Gettysburg is equated with the Battle of Armageddon. But if, you, if you've ever taken the time to study the Battle of Gettysburg over three days, you have all these different reference points of the battle. Was Pickett's charge the Battle of Gettysburg? Sure. Was the Battle of Little Round Top the Battle of Gettysburg? Sure. Was the Wheat Field? Uh, was uh, the um, Seminary Ridge? Were those... Those were all conflicts of the Battle of Gettysburg. And so we have all three of these places identified that make up the Battle of Armageddon. So that's how we can not go too far. We can rightly interpret the word polemos and interpret and translate the, the word polemos, yes, as battle, as an individual skirmish, but also involving a war or a campaign that takes place over 1,600 furlongs. Okay? So, again, a couple of pictures or a map. We see Megiddo, and then here is a more modern day, I don't know what year this picture was taken, overlooking the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So that brings us to the what. The what. So we have talked about who, we've talked about where. Now let's talk about what happens. We don't have a lot of time this evening uh, to go through uh, all of this, so I will rush through fairly quickly here without going too much over tonight. But there are four great world powers that come together against God, Israel, and eventually even they have conflict amongst themselves, as we will uh, see in Ezekiel 38. We can also refer to these other passages of Scripture to help again complement and supplement our knowledge of what goes on at the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14, describes the movement of these powers against God, specifically against Israel in the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, as the covenant with Israel has been broken, the, the abomination of desolation, and then there is a holocaust of sorts against Israel in the last three and a half years as Israel realizes the Antichrist is not 
the Messiah or is not preparing for the true Messiah, that he is a, a, a deceiver and a liar, he is an instrument of Satan himself, then Israel finally recognizes Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And Israel turns to Christ in saving faith as their Messiah by the, the thousands and the millions. It says in, in Scripture, uh, the entire nation. And there's references in Romans, I believe it's chapter 11, about Israel uh, returning to, to, to Christ. Paul refers to that there and the grafting back in and all that. But now as we get down to the last bold judgments, when we get to the final bold judgment in Revelation 16, we see the movement of these powers against God and against Israel. Daniel 11 indicates that the Armageddon conflict begins with an invasion of Israel by the kings of the north and the kings of the, the kings of the north and the south. So Ezekiel 38 in verse 4, And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. What is the fish hook? What is the flesh hook? I mean, the hook, like the fish hook is what I, I think of, but the flesh hook. It's the idea of they are working out the providence of God. They are being taken and pulled along by the providence of God, while at the same time they are acting in their own will in rebellion against God, trying to destroy Israel, trying to take on God himself and overthrow God's supreme authority. Is, is this not reflective of Satan trying to kill Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and yet accomplishing God's redemption plan. God can overrule, God can even use sin, but he overrules sin. He doesn't tempt man to sin. They of their own free will in rebellion against God are trying to destroy Israel, trying to take on God, and God is at the same time doing what? He is preparing them for their final demise. And then, of course, Satan is cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, released one more time at the end of the millennial kingdom. So they were led by their sinful desires of destruction of God's people while accomplishing God's purpose. That's the meaning of verse 4 in the hooks. In Ezekiel 38, 7 and 8, we don't have time to read all these verses, but Israel repents, turns to Christ as the second half of the tribulation begins. Of course, we can also reference Zechariah 12 through 14, Romans 11, where Israel is grafted back in. Obviously, God is keeping his promise to Israel Restoring them back to their land. As we've already seen the beginnings of that. The fact that Israel is even a nation today. That they even have land even though they're scattered and dispersed. The fact that Israel even has what they have today. Though it's only a small fraction of what they rightfully, what is rightfully theirs. Okay, we've seen the beginning of that. It will be finally fulfilled at the end of the tribulation and into the millennial kingdom. And we've spent some time talking about that in this series. So then we come to Ezekiel 38 and verses 10 through 13. This is the short-term peace at the beginning of the tribulation, at the first half of the tribulation. Daniel 9 and verse 27 references it as well. I wish we had time to read all these verses. Verse 15. We come to Ezekiel 38 and verse 15. And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. Okay? So, 
Gog is coming. Verse 14 references Gog. Horses. Is it literally, physically, horses? Or is it John, I mean, Ezekiel's, as we see with John in Revelation, using the vocabulary they had to describe the weapons of war that are being used? We don't know. Have the weapons of war been so destroyed during the judgments? Uh, we're, not, we're not sure. The horses are a reference to the weapons of war. Whether they are literally horses or not, we're not sure. But they are the, the weapons. Uh, I put John, but it's Ezekiel. Um, or in Revelation, it would be John. Describing the weapons of their warfare. And then Ezekiel 38, 18 through 23. After repeated attempts to destroy Israel... In the second half of the tribulation, the nations converge and the bold judgments have been pouring out and we get down to the seventh bold judgment. And we, are, we have taken some time and looked at those judgments. We ain't seen nothing yet. There is catastrophes. There are awful things going on around the world that are part of the groaning of creation. But when God has lifted his hand of mercy and grace and man is left to his own devices and God has taken his people at the rapture. And yes, there are martyrs and yes, there are people who get saved during the tribulation. But God is pouring out his judgment. And I don't know about you. I was talking with somebody earlier today, but I don't know about you. But it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God or God is consuming fire. And some of these politicians, some of these wicked, evil, corrupt politicians that have authority and short-term political power right now, even in the United States, they may get some measure of power right now, temporarily here on this earth and in America, and the Antichrist is going to have a very short kingdom. And when those judgments are poured out, we haven't seen the likes of what will happen. And if we've, if we, as we have looked at these bold judgments already, there is the catastrophic judgments coming. And the last one is that seventh bold judgment. And we come to Ezekiel 38, 19 and 20. And as God is, a, as Christ is about to return, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. So that the fishes of the sea, the fowls of the heaven, and the beasts of the field, and all creeping things that creep upon the earth, and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake in my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, and steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon many people that are with him in overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord. There is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period to establish his millennial kingdom. And that is the description of the judgment. Ezekiel 39 goes into further description of Gog's defeat. The weapons of war burn for seven years. It takes seven months to bury the dead. Another reason why we believe that this, and I think is the best 
understanding that this is a reference to the Battle of Armageddon is because can the seven years of burning and of burying go into the millennial kingdom? Sure. But I have a hard time understanding if this happens at the end of the millennial kingdom, how those things would go into heaven or the new creation. Does God then pause seven months while all that stuff is taken care of and then create and then destroy the earth, and then there's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. I just, I, again, I believe it best fits at the end of the tribulation, and those seven months or seven years of burying and burning are those first months and years of the millennial kingdom. And then verses 17 through 20 of Ezekiel 39 is a poem or a song about Gog's destruction. Ezekiel 39, 21 through 29, describes Israel's restoration, and then chapters 40 through 48 are about the millennial kingdom. So again, it makes sense in understanding the, 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 the chronology of Ezekiel that the battle of Armageddon is what is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, one last thing here as we come to a close. We come back to, and we see in verse 5 of Ezekiel 38, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Torgarmah of the north quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. These are the armies that are coming, led by the Antichrist, coming to the Middle East to, to, to attack Israel, to take on God himself at the Battle of Armageddon. Who are these countries? There's the king of the north, kings of the east, king of the west, king of the south. Okay. So we can look at, specifically in those passages, Persia, which is very possibly and likely to be Iran from the west. Put, or Libya, uh, put, or put, Libya is referenced coming out of the west. Okay, and then we have uh, the mention of Ethiopia, or Kush, Kush, uh, in the in the south, and then there's the reference to the north, which would be Gomer, the house of Togorma, which could be, and from understanding of uh, of ancient geography, the Gomer and Tor Togarma is modern day Turkey. But is it possible that that would involve an alliance with, say, Russia? That's where we could possibly see Russia being involved. But I don't want to spend all of our time speculating as to who and what people. <laughs> we know that there are these specific nations, countries, groups of people who are coming together to attack Israel to take on God himself at this battle of Armageddon. And we just read what will happen. And, of course, we can read about it in Revelation 16 as well. So then we come and we move, we fast forward ahead to the Millennial Kingdom. We've already referenced this in Revelation 20, where Satan is loose from the bottomless pit and deceives those born during the Millennial Kingdom who do not, did not trust Christ as their Savior. And in that battle, Christ merely speaks the word, fire rains down, and Satan and his armies are destroyed. Which, again, Ezekiel 38 and 39 seem to much better describe the Battle of Armageddon than the last battle. 
And again, there's a good commentator who I know. I don't know him personally, but I know I've used his book for years. I respect him highly. He believes Ezekiel 38 and 39 are somewhere during the midpoint of the tribulation. I believe they are the battle of Armageddon. The Gog and Magog of Revelation 20, again, are titles representative of Satan and his army, his hosts that come against God at the end of the millennial kingdom. And then Christ speaks the word and they are destroyed by fire. Now, I had Derek read specifically as we close tonight. I had Derek specifically read from Psalm 24 on purpose. And we could go to Psalm 2 where God will have them in derision. God laughs. He has them in derision, the nations. We spent some time a few weeks ago on the destiny of the nations. But I love Psalm 24 where we get down to verse number 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Gates have to do with, they're symbolic of power, of prominence. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. I don't know if Putin's going to be able to accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish. I don't know what's going to happen with the United States of America and whatever ridiculous ideas that our ruling class seems to have about the future of America and what they're trying to make America into. They're ridiculous, can I just say perverted, ungodly ideas of what they think America should look like. I don't know what's going to happen with China and Taiwan and Xi Jinping. I don't know what's going to happen with um, Kim Jong-un. It used to be, I think it was his father. We used to joke around, uh, Kim, Kim Jong-il. Kim Jong is ill, is what we used to say. But now it's Kim Jong-un. I don't know what's going to happen. Is he going to shoot off a nuclear weapon? I don't, I, don't, I don't know all of those details. But every kingdom that man has set up has failed. There's only one kingdom that remains. And Daniel spoke about that to Nebuchadnezzar as the stone rolled over the idol, the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw and crushed it. And at the bottom of that image is those ten nations, those toes of the revived Roman Empire, speaking of the Antichrist and his kingdom. They're all destroyed. They all meet their end. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful truth that you are the king of glory. That Lord... We must be on your side. Lord, we are unworthy, ungodly sinners, saved only by your grace. And Lord, we are thankful for the victory that we have in Jesus. That even though the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties come on this earth, and even though man tries to usurp your authority, he always fails because, Lord, you are the King of glory. We thank you for these truths. We don't know all the details of these battles, but 